Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 13 days had passed since the death of George Floyd. 13 days since a white cop in Minneapolis kneeling on the neck of a black man triggered a wave of revulsion and protest around the world. Suddenly, news broke in the UK. The statue of a 17th century slave trader pulled down in Bristol. The defining image from those protests has been the toppling of a statue. Protesters then dragged it through the street to the harbour. There, they returned him to the water. He crashed down and sank. For some, Prime Minister Boris Johnson and President Donald Trump among them, pulling down or defacing a statue was just too much to bear. It was, for them, evidence of an out-of-control cancel culture. It was a real moment of, where will it all end? But really, of course, it was a how-did-it-all-begin moment. I'm Basha Cummings, and in this week's Slow Newscast, I travel to Bristol to see the empty plinth for myself. Not to tell the story of how the statue of Colston came down, but to understand why it went up in the first place and how it stayed up. Slow News is a podcast made by us here at Tortoise. We're a news publisher, in an app, online, in our daily Sensemaker email, and, as you already know, in podcasts. What's different about us is that we investigate what's driving the news, and we'd love for you to join us. By becoming a member of our newsroom, you'll get access to our journalism, and you can join our open news meetings and help decide what matters in the world and how we should report it. To get access to all of Tortoise, All you have to do is download our app and take the free trial. Go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash pod trial and help make the news. I wanted to understand what the construction and eventual destruction of an eight foot, eight inch tall bronze of a man in a wig and a frock coat reveals to us about the stories that we tell ourselves how it was that an event in an American city in May forced us to think about events of more than 300 years ago. We are now approaching Bristol Temple Meads, where this train terminates. Okay, shall I hold it? Yeah, 
Okay, so here we are at this strange denuded plinth. It's quite interesting actually that there's it's chipped at the top. The stone is chipped where I suppose they pulled it down and then there's this this broken paving stone just underneath it. It's quite nice, it's sort of the thud of history. You can see it with your own eyes. What does it say on the plaque? Erected by citizens of Bristol as a memorial of one of the most virtuous and wise sons of their city. But four bronze fish writhing on the stone point to a less virtuous story. And there, right there, is the divergence between the man, the myth, and his history. In that plinth, Colston the slaver was replaced with Colston the philanthropist, but it's the fish that tell a different story. And in that sense, of course, throwing Colston into the very waters that launched his slave ships was, of course, perfect symmetry. Back to the water he goes. Now, I'm from London, not Bristol, but it doesn't take anyone long to see the influence that this man has had over the city. There's Colston Street, Colston Avenue, Colston Road, Colston Hall, Colston School, Colston Hill, Colston Yard, Colston Parade, and so much more. And until recently, the Colston Statue. And it was there when I was standing there looking down into the water that I started to think about the power of myth-making. And I started thinking about this wild story, and it's a legend and it goes like this, that when the ships were transporting enslaved Africans along the Atlantic Middle Passage, the captains and their brutal crews would throw so-called disruptive cargo overboard, and that cargo included pregnant women. And the story goes that those women swimming deep in the Atlantic Ocean gave birth. And they gave birth to beings called Drexians, black, water-dwelling super-creatures who needed no oxygen and who formed an underwater society, a black Atlantis, more advanced than anything found on land. This is Drexian cruiser control, bubble one. And this myth is not the product of centuries of telling and retelling. This is a myth invented by a Detroit techno and electro duo called Drexia in 1997 in the liner notes for their album, The Quest. They built on the Afrofuturist tradition of musicians like Sun Ra before them and reimagined the slave story. And of course, in reimagining it, they reclaimed it. And that story, the Drexian myth, was, as the renowned African-American critic Greg Tate put it, a revisionist look at the Middle Passage as a realm of possibility and not of annihilation. And it struck me that Colson's removal was similar. It wasn't about an annihilation. It was a symbolic act, a dismantling of a myth. It was about citizens of Bristol, predominantly young citizens, saying, we have the power to rewrite the story of our city. So I wanted to understand why they had taken that decision and just how embedded the Colson myth was in the city. And so I booked some time with a man called Rob, a local tour guide and a local history expert. Um, should we just do it here? Are you happy? Is it too windy? Or? Um, I'm going to show myself. You're going to show yourself. Okay. So do you want to just start by introducing yourself, your name, where you're from, your job? Um, 
My name is um, Rob Collin. I'm a Blue Badge guide um, for the Southwest. I guide in Bristol and Bath. And one of the tours um, I routinely provide, I have done since March of last year, is a walking tour on the Bristol slave trade, which operated in Bristol from about 1650 to the abolition of the slave trade in 1807. Now, Rob reads. For so much of our conversation, he talked about the bittersweet joy of discovering the city's history, one book after another, talking to one historian after another. As I started to read more and more, it was evident, very evident, very quickly, that a subject which I was taught nothing of at school, I did modern history A-level, the transatlantic slave trade as a period was a blank sheet of paper. So I started to read extensively um, on, on that. And having um, read extensively... And for him, like for many other Bristolians, he was almost totally unaware of the city's slaving past until he took it upon himself to find out more. African trade, which... Um, a 1,000-year monopoly. monopoly. Now, the governor, the first governor of the Royal African Company was James, Duke of York. So James, Duke of York, the later James II of England, was the first governor of the Royal African Company. And, of course, Colston, again, you read more, you realise that Colston, he became a member of the Royal African Company in 1680, and he was then a deputy governor from 1689 for about two years. Um, But because Bristol and other towns in England petitioned Parliament and said, we want a slice of the African trade, we don't want it to be in the hands of a monopoly company, Parliament agreed to that in 1698. So the official start of the slave trade in Bristol is 1698. And while other slave traders were as wealthy as Colston, it was Colston who chose to give a big part of his wealth to charity when he died. And the money was used to build schools, to build houses for the poor, to build churches. And that's really when the myth-making began, the rebrand, shall we say. He was transformed from a slave trader to a sort of founding father. And it's something that the historian David Olasoga has talked about a lot. He recently came to Tortoise, the newsroom where we produce this podcast, and he talked about Colston becoming something of a poster boy. Well, the merchant elite who ran Bristol, particularly a man named James Arrowsmith, was trying to create a hero figure for that elite, uh, a figure who was steeped in philanthropy, who justified the domination of that merchant elite over Bristol historically. They stumbled across Colston because he was famous, because of the his name was on a school, his name was on an almshouse. He's not the biggest philanthropist in the city's history, but he was somebody who was a member of those societies, a member of those organisations, who was one of them, and he was just selected to be the, 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 the poster boy for the power and the supposed success and philanthropy of that merchant elite. This isn't an attempt to whitewash the history of a slave trader. They just didn't care that he was a slave trader because they didn't care very much about the Atlantic slave trade or its legacy. And so a myth became entrenched, a reputation that even those who were educated within Colston's own schools, named after him, weren't even really aware of. That's Cleo, a former Lord Mayor of Bristol and a founding member of Countering Colston, an activist group that's been working in the city for years. We met in a local Caribbean restaurant, and to say that Cleo is impressive is an understatement. For years, she's been fighting for the city to stop just celebrating Colston uncritically. And it's personal for her. She didn't just grow up in Bristol, she attended Colston's girls' school. 
and as a kid, she had to celebrate his birthday every year. I know bits and pieces, but didn't know a lot as a kid. I yeah. mean, my mum, I would describe as a kind of a white British woman who's very ashamed of British history, and that came out across a lot in my childhood, you know. Mm. Um, my dad, who passed when I was 10, was very kind of Afrocentric, a Jamaican-born African man, and did give me a book, actually, before he died, took me to a bookshop and gave me a book called Black Americana, which charted the history of enslavement by Portuguese to present-day African-Americans mm -hmm. and the achievements made. And he said to me, when you're old enough, read this. So I guess I had that as a bit of a grounding yeah. that I could understand. You know, the first images were of people in yokes and, and chains and stuff. So I, I knew that, and I guess even from a young age, that element of racial justice was very mm. much part of me. But I didn't know who Colston was. I didn't even know when I attended his school. Um, and I, I had wanted to attend that school since the age of five from walking past there. And no, it was only sort of later into my academic career I, I saw activists that looked like me on the TV saying that the statue should come down. And that's when I started questioning. Right. And questioning in school. Yeah. And was totally dismissed, made to feel like I was really stupid mm. and really put down and put in my place. Yeah. So that became a real conflict, actually. Yeah. And it just felt really disappointing not to have to make me feel totally othered and, and you know, marginalised, but also the majority of the other students, it was a fee-paying school, the majority of the other students were coming from quite wealthy, yeah. insular backgrounds, and it was a disservice to them not to present a holistic mm. view. And you said that your time getting involved in activism in those early years, you learned about the political dynamics of the city. What, what are they? I would say in some ways we've gone forward, but in other ways we've gone backwards. And the black community has always been on the back foot. Mm. And even and also white, I'd say the phrase white working class communities for a better phrase, like until people tell me how they'd like to be called, and I wish they would, I use that term. There's, there's always been a them and us with the council. There's never been a, a tradition of cohesion. Mm. There's been so many barriers. I mean, fascinatingly enough, as a councillor and going on to be Lord Mayor, the amount of Bristolians I'll meet who say they've never been in City Hall. Wow. They've never been there. They don't think it's for them. So there's been this massive class social divide for ever, mm. you know? So... Um, I think that's still at the heart of the city. People do charity and they try to do good and talk about diversity, but we've, we've had very little progress. Mm. So Cleo became a councillor and she was Lord Mayor. She kept focusing on Colston and she said that slowly people started to listen to her. She said, if you've got the title of a councillor, they have to listen to you and they have to entertain you. Together with some local historians, she started compiling a list of everything in the city that bore Colston's name. Existed before? No, not, in, not compiled in one yeah. place. Because you'd think, you know, that he's sort of interwoven into the whole mm. city, and and like you say, when you were young, you weren't taught that history, yeah. and yet nobody had an inventory of just how far he was no. involved in the whole city and the statues or the names of the places. Or... No, not in a cohesive way. So that was interesting, and I think our stance was always, you know, the consensus was there needs to be context. You know, some of us mm. might like to see a memorial to something else. I'd never want to see images of 
my ancestors in chains, that's not empowering for anyone. Mm. It really reinforces a negative message. Mm. And we don't say slaves, we say we were African people enslaved. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think mainly our consensus was let's get him down, let's move him into the museum. Let's get him off the city landscape so people can choose to or not. Yeah. Then it kind of also went into these other people, other stakeholders who were working towards getting a different plaque because what happened was we had a guerrilla artist who was sticking on an alternative narrative yeah. to the Bristol's most wise and virtuous son, which yeah. is still on the plinth. So he was sticking on a, a kind of, maybe not factually totally correct, but an accurate kind of mm. counter-narrative. Um... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And because of that, it sparked some other stakeholders to say that they were going to get agreement for an alternative plaque mm. to be permanently put on. That was probably the, la- the last juncture we had in any kind of moving forward, which there were rumours that it was getting shelved, really, by merchant venturers. I think there was a little bit of input... What really struck me when Cleo was speaking was this. At first, it seemed like the toppling of Colston had ignited a national conversation about our history. Suddenly, Churchill was being boarded up in central London. We saw the beginnings of a culture war over who we should celebrate and how. People were suddenly out protecting their local statues, very British. You'd be forgiven for thinking that this was really the beginning of something. But of course, listening to Cleo, I realised that really all that had happened in the Black Lives Matter movement was it had just become mainstream. Like so many things, this conversation had been going on at a local level for decades, and it was people like Cleo who were on the front line. But they met stiff opposition. There are council documents going back as far as 2006, 14 years ago, that talked about the removal of the Colston statue and the re-examining of his legacy. And yet, until two years ago, processions would still pass through the city, celebrating his birthday, reaching the cathedral, which, of course, until very recently, also had two stained-glass windows of Colston. Why was there so much opposition? 
Well, we know from conversations with various people at the heart of this battle that it was an 800-year-old secret organisation that until the 2000s was entirely made up of rich white men that was central to protecting the Colston myth, an organisation called the Society of Merchant Venturers. The merchants have been pulling strings in Bristol for 800 years. For three and a half centuries, they controlled all shipping in the city. They took part enthusiastically in the slave trade. It made them hugely wealthy. They've invested in the city. They've had a hand in most of Bristol's landmark buildings and adventures. But the merchants say their main business today is giving their money away. It was a name that Cleo kept mentioning too. Who are they? So the Merchant Adventurers are an ancient society, really. They are the equivalent of the livery companies that you would find in... And hopefully people understand that as well. You'd find in in London and Liverpool and Edinburgh and that kind of thing. A lot of major cities have a number of those organisations or Mm -hmm. societies. We only have one, Mm -hmm. which is Merchant Adventurers. And their origins started out, as the name would suggest, as merchants. Mm -hmm. And they played a pivotal role in the transatlantic trafficking of enslaved Africans and Colston was a key member of them and really cherished by them because he was also deputy governor of the Royal Africa Company which had the overall monopoly of the trade and as a part of them he was able to kind of bring in the other cities and make it less London focused Mm. so he really opened it up officially of course illegal trading would have been going on way before that yeah okay and so your position for many years has been that they still have a hold over the city and Mm. that they are still influencing decisions around for example the taking down of the statue yeah it's this it's an interesting one i guess you kind of go through the gambit of conspiracy theories mm-hmm. and blah 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 yeah. thinking of what are these what is this mysterious group of people yeah. loads of people trying to infiltrate and get information out about yeah. them I did infiltrate one of their services on his birthday mm-hmm. um, a few years on back Colston's on birthday. Colston's birthday and that do you was know quite what day that is? it's sometime in November because they have all their celebrations around that time yeah. Unsurprisingly, Edward Colston was a member of this exclusive society. And that's the thing, the thing that Rob the tour guide alluded to, the thing that Cleo had been battling. The slave trade, the slave economy, isn't just tied to a statue. That's naive. It's everywhere. It has shaped our institutions as well as our buildings and our statues. And it's something that David Olasoga said when the Colston statue came crashing down. He wrote, this is not an assault on history, it is history. Like the great activist and thinker James Baldwin said before him, history is not merely something to be read, and it doesn't refer merely or even principally to the past. On the contrary, the great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us, are unconsciously controlled by it in many ways, and history is literally present in all that we do. And in that sense... What we've seen in Bristol and in the US is what Olusoga called a change in consciousness. I think this is an intergenerational moment. If you try to understand what's happened in 2020 and why it's happened, that is the big, that that is the new phenomenon. Uh, And it's so striking how deliberate, how purposeful and how targeted the actions of the demonstrators and Black Lives Matter demonstrators across the world has been. 
this is, I don't think it's a change of political direction. I think it's a change of consciousness. And I think what history suggests to me is that when they take place, it's best to be on the right side of history. It's best to go with the flow and to, to be on the side of the, of the people who want a new narrative. I think that what happened in Bristol was a critically important moment because it was directed and organized by young people. They specifically targeted not the built environment, not the entire memorial landscape of Bristol, but a single statue to somebody who represented a single history that they felt had been ignored and marginalized. And they toppled that statue. Beside it is the statue of Edmund Burke, not far as a statue of Queen Victoria. They were untouched, rather like all of the shop fronts were untouched. This wasn't thuggery. This was a political protest about our blindness to our history. Now, if you have a generation that's willing to do that, then I feel that the, the appeals that people like myself make for a more holistic, a warts and all, an honest take of our history is going to find already an audience, an intergenerational audience, a younger generation, I should say, who are willing to confront these histories. I don't think they need young people. They don't need to believe that they are the only people in the entire world who happen to live in the one country that's never done anything wrong. They don't have that desire for a deluded and a, a exceptional version of their past. So after all of that, what happens next? Marvin Rees is Bristol's first black mayor. He was brought up in Bristol, and like many others, he was brought up on the Colston myth. Uh, I mean, my, my feelings about Bristol are always mixed. There's a, fun, there's a very powerful C.S. Lewis quote that says, when you love is kind of phenomenally forgiving, right, but is phenomenally impatient with the slightest imperfection <laughs> as well. Uh, and that's my relationship with Bristol. I, you know, I didn't enjoy the city growing up in it. I didn't enjoy my place in the city or what I felt the city felt towards me as a child growing up in it. But what I have seen over recent years is a city that's increasingly prepared to look its contradictions and, and weaknesses eye to eye. The inequalities, its history, it's sometimes hostility to newcomers. And that actually makes me proud that we're prepared to face up to those things and then to begin to deal with them. Because there, there are no challenges that any other city does not have. Every city has these challenges. But to, to be fronting them up and dealing with them puts us on the front end, I think, of progressive cities around the world. And when you see that empty plinth now where Colston was standing, what does it, what does it make you feel? To be honest, I mean, I, I'm not phenomenally emotional about these, uh, these things. I'm pretty matter-of-fact about it. I, 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 I'm certainly, having said that, I do, it, it, it's kind of fulfilling not to have Colston there. There is clearly a symbol of a turning of the page to not have Colston there. The empty plinth for me, in and of itself, incredibly powerful as well. I think, you know, people have been kind of stressing and having this sort of sense of urgency. They've got to put something there. Silence can be okay, right? And, and having, having an empty plinth to me is, speaks of a city in a country that is looking for answers and doesn't have them yet. And actually taking time to stop and reflect is, is important. So I enjoy it um, being um, empty. But look, there's a context to this. The Colston's statue coming down did not lead 
to a change in the educational status of children from black and Asian backgrounds in the city, did not reduce the inequalities in mental health, in housing, transport, poverty, hunger. So while all that is incredibly kind of intoxicating for many people, there is a brutal reality that I have to keep my eye on in that in and of itself, those symbolic acts do not change the socioeconomic status of the most marginalised and the poorest people in the city. And the danger of symbolic acts are always that people get consumed by them and lose sight of the need to make the underlying changes that we're actually um, after and end up substituting their emotional feelings for real change, which ultimately leads to a greater and a deeper cynicism down the track when people say, well, we've engaged in all these big acts and nothing's really changed. I, I'm, I'm pretty committed to avoiding that. Not long after Colston fell, a new statue appeared on top of the plinth at five in the morning, installed there by the famous British artist Mark Quinn. It depicted a woman called Jen Reed, a local activist standing tall, her hand in the air in a black power salute, and it was undeniably powerful. But Marvin Rees had it taken down almost immediately. And the contrast between how long it had taken Colston to fall and how quickly this new symbol had been removed, initially caused uproar. But Marvin was clear in our conversation. He did not accept that a white artist should have the power to, without consultation, install a new statue on the plinth. What's really interesting, if it comes up for you, is... So I took down Mark Quinn's statue and I did say, I'm not taking down the statue of a black woman, I'm taking down the statue of a a wealthy white artist from London. And in the first instance, a number of people didn't get that. But what's happened over the last few weeks is more and more black artists have said Mark Quinn's action was kind of colonialism. You know, he's moved on to the space, you know, and and he moved because of his wealth. So I I thought that. But, you know, if, if it's of interest to you, I don't have to say anything about it, but it's just part of the context for what's happening in the city. Surely what we've learned from Colston is that if we're going to have symbols, we need to collectively decide what they are. We can't just install them overnight because we decide that this is the collective will when we haven't had a collective conversation. It's not the will. I talked, so he, he, I talked to him about just after Colston came down because he made the offer. And I said, right, well, it's a great offer, you know, and I really, really appreciate that. So it to be nice. But now's not the time. We just had Colston pulled down, rolled through the streets and thrown in the harbour. In many ways, that's enough of a symbolic act, right? Now what we need is a period of reflection and, and to stop and to take the heat out, right? While we actually also continue to deal with the real stuff. And I said, and also, it, you know, it's probably going to get damaged and pulled down. There'll be a reaction, right? And I thought he understood that. And then I got a text like about five in the morning saying Marvin I, I just put my statue up <laughs> I was like <laughs> I thought I had some idea of some kind of paper mache thing I didn't quite know who it was actually because I, I didn't have his number I just I I, I, I thought I, I didn't know who it was Mark some guy called Mark puts a statue up and then and then I kind of I was like oh god now I know what it is and I, I phoned him that morning and I said well look you, you know I said now you've done it you've got to go on the full ride, right? Because when I make a statement or I make a decision, I'm on that journey. But you don't get to take an action and then jump off the train, right? 
So if you create a situation in which there's increased racial tension and someone gets attacked, you're in that, right? You can't just run around provoking conversation if you don't know where that conversation is going. Let me finish by going back to the water, back to those docks. The fall of Colston was a moment of reckoning for a myth, not just about a man, but about a city and about British history. It was a moment of confrontation with a past that we had tried to forget. The plinth is empty now, the statue is in storage, but the space has been created for an honest accounting of the past. Edward Colston's story is getting a new ending. And on the other side of the Atlantic, the far-reaching story of the killing of George Floyd is still unfolding. Thanks for listening today. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, I think there's a really good chance that you'll enjoy all the other journalism that we do at Tortoise. There are articles that you can read through our app or online. And because we're an open newsroom, that means that there are a whole load of editorial meetings that you can join in on from wherever you are in the world. You can shape our journalism and the stories that we tell. So all you need to do is get our app and you can get access to everything. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash pod trial for a 30-day free trial. And just as importantly, of course, if you like this podcast, please share it or give us a review. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Traffic jams tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.